This is the Education Gadfly Show. It's not surprising. I, I think your dog squeaking in the background there with his squeaking <laughs> toy agrees with that. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Daniel Buck. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, and also joining us as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Well, Dan, uh, for those of you that don't know, is a senior visiting fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. He's been writing great stuff for us for our Flypaper blog and Gadfly newsletter. He writes regularly at National Review Online also, and he is an English language arts teacher at Holy Spirit Middle School in Appleton, Wisconsin. Dan, it was really exciting to have you on the show. I think you were on once before, but I was on vacation at that time. So I'm excited to get to chat with you this week. And what we're going to talk about is, of course, what's uh, for better or for worse on many people's minds, that four-letter word, M-A-S-K, right? Masks. And this debate, of course, has been going on for a while now, both inside of schools and outside. You know, a lot of times the debate is really about you know, what's appropriate to ask of the many uh, in terms of an inconvenience of putting a mask on our faces, you know, versus what serious risks for the few, you know, the immunocompromised people out there and what, what can we do to make it safe for them to come out of their homes and participate. So those debates happen within schools as well. But, you know, schools have some specific debates on top of that, which is really about whether masking has downsides for kids in terms of learning. And that is something that you took up in this piece. So let's talk about that. On Ed Reform Update. What's your perspective, Dan? You know, is it more than just an inconvenience for kids to be wearing these masks all day? Um, I mean, I would say yes. That's the the whole gist of the piece. You hear people say, "Oh, it's just an, it's minor inconvenience. It's just another piece of clothing." It's like asking them to wear, you know, a shirt. It's no more than that. But for children, it is more than that. Kids need to see the face. I mean, this is kind of covering cursory. I'm sure we'll we'll dig into it more later. But kids need to see the face to learn phonics. It's kind of a fundamental of reading instruction where the teacher sounds out. You know, they point to sh. They say that these two letters make a sh sound. You know, a th. These make a th sound, and they mm-hmm. demonstrate over demonstrate with their mouth so the kids can learn the letter and sound correlation. So, I mean, that's just starting right there. Is I think it's really going to impact literacy. And I think it would be, it'd be hard to draw a direct causative line between these two. But you know, when we see learning loss and lower literacy scores this year, I think it's safe to assume that masks played a part in it. How much? That'd be impossible to tease out, but mm-hmm. I think there's something there. Yeah, no, I think that that's a really important point. And you can imagine for these little kids, especially, you know, I mean, you pointed to some great research that looks at the very little, little tiny kids, you know, when the kids are what toddlers and preschoolers and just learning the language that they are doing that by looking at our faces and reading lips in a way, right? Uh, But then the instruction, the phonics instruction, those uh, first grades in elementary school, a big factor. Now you teach middle school. Let's hope all of your students are way past that phonics phase, but you know, they are still trying to communicate with one another and with you and you with them. So tell, tell us, give us a sense. What's it like inside that English language arts class if everybody's masked up? Well, we just went masks optional recently, and the change in my class was almost immediate, more of a sense of community, more just like day-to-day joy. There's something about making, I mean, you can make eye contact, but 
when you're making eye contact, seeing your friend or a fellow student or your teacher smiling. I mean, it's, it's so cheesy to talk about, but mm-hmm. seeing somebody smile like floods your brain with feel good chemicals. And again, that's cheesy to point to, but it's not insignificant when you're cutting how many students do you walk past in the hallway and just smile at or wave to. You know, I know I make faces at every student that I walk past in the hallway, at least when I'm in the hallway. Um, and when you bring that whole face back into these just really small, distant interactions, it adds a whole sense of joy to the classroom. And then also, it's just one fight that I don't have to pick, you know, constantly Mm. telling kids to put up their mask. Like, that's also no small thing. We talk a lot about not over-policing students, but every time I have to tell a student to put Mm. their mask up, it's a confrontation. And it's something that I can now avoid, and we don't have to have that. Yeah, David, get in here. That's something that you're really excited about, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask just about, like, the lost instructional time, right? I mean, it's just walking around with James and, and the amount of time that we have to address this just on the subway or anywhere, certainly with little kids. And I can't imagine, honestly, I mean, nobody likes it. I have to believe that there's just a certain amount of class time that is lost to this. I, I don't know if you could put a percentage on it. Yeah, I want to hear a little bit more about the research just because I feel like our, our listeners may not know. I mean, what is your sense at having dug into this, Dan? Can we say anything with certainty? Just give us a sense of it. Uh, I mean, it's so early on, it's just a matter of how much certainty. So a few of the studies that I referenced in the piece, Mike uh, mentioned one of them already, but with really little kids, this is probably the most interesting thing that I thought being nerdy about language and literacy development. There's a study that tracked infant eye movements of a speaker. And when they are really, really young, zero to about five or six months, they look just at your eyes predominantly. But once they hit, you know, six, seven, eight months, and they're starting to develop oral language, babies start to look at your mouth predominantly because they're watching your lip formation. They are watching the things you do with your mouth to form noise. You know, how are you making a sound or a buh or a duh? I mean, I experience this all the time with my daughter. I'll look at her and change from making a muh to a duh sound. And she watches me really intently and then starts mimicking me. She's looking, she's listening, she's seeing, and then trying to do that herself. So that's with the really little kids. And then once you get up more into you know early elementary school, there were a few studies that looked into what effect does wearing a mask have on phonemic awareness and word recognition, and it negatively impacts it. These are preliminary studies, so we cannot say, you know, point to some percentage but students were not learning in these studies, were not learning their phonemes, their letter sounds, their words as well when they had a teacher that was wearing a mask. Yeah, which all makes sense. you know. And, and then, of course, there's all the research, this question about whether masking is actually helping to reduce the spread of COVID or protect young people who are immunocompromised you know, on top of them wearing their own masks and wearing masks that are high quality and that fit well. This seems to be a big question, but you know the CDC continues to say even now, you know, masks for everybody in school, even for young kids as young as two, uh, and yet most of the other advanced nations in the world, I mean, right across the pond in Europe, have come to very different conclusions. Right? I mean, this is kind of an American phenomenon that's happening—a version of American exceptionalism. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, like you said, a lot of European countries kept the masks off little kids. I mean, the CDC recommends down to two-year-olds. And the World Health Organization 
I don't have the numbers directly in front of me, but they don't go that low. And then even for older ages, they recommend masking only in specific instances. If the caseload is really high, they are doing everything they can to keep masks off of kids because they know kids just are not the vectors. They're not the ones spreading this disease. You know, it's, it's a very different discussion for masking adults, but all of the evidence seems to point in schools among children, especially the really young children, that masking just doesn't have that much of an effect. And again, back to the reason that we just discussed is that, you know, if you're wearing the mask around your chin, then that's probably not going to have much of an impact. Chin diapers, that's what we call them in schools. Right. No, absolutely. And, and that's the nature. We're talking about children, right? There's not going to be perfect use of these things. And then all these studies, it's so hard, you know, to figure out how to control for all the other factors, right? What's the ventilation going on inside the school? You know, what's the quarantine policy? How careful are they implementing all these other protocols? I mean, it's just a really tough thing to know about. David, last thoughts on this? Yeah, I think there is some sort of trade-off here, and we could talk a long time without being able to characterize it precisely, but I just, I think we're seeing it across the country, and it's how I feel in my gut, that there are costs associated with this, um, and they are. They're cheesy emotional costs, but they become a lot less cheesy when we're talking about kids' mental health. And I don't think joy is something that's cheesy. I think it's actually pretty fundamental to human existence. And yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing to be in this situation where we're trying to sort of weigh all these alternatives. But, you know, at least in D.C., the wave has passed and there may be another wave. But if we take the view that masks need to be on in schools right now, when the wave has passed largely it's hard for me to figure out when we will ever take them off again. And that is deeply concerning to me. The psychology of all of this keeps changing, right? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, when we started, it was, well, we're going to do this for a couple months. You know, it's a couple years later now, and we're still doing it. And so, you know, we have to start thinking long term. And uh, if you're worried for your kid's health, there's a real simple step you can take. You can get them vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you, you can ask them to mask. But uh, I do think we're at the point where community-wide mandates of something that has such obvious costs need to be reconsidered. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. And, and look, uh, it's interesting, David, that, of course, uh, many governors, including Democratic governors, are coming to the same conclusion, right? And you're seeing these, these at least statewide mask mandates in most places going away. That doesn't mean, though, that in deep blue cities and suburbs, communities, that those mask mandates disappear. Yeah, it's really important that we all put our egos to the side when we're having this conversation, Mike. I mean, we have all been operating with such absurdly imperfect information for so yep. long. And my understanding of what makes sense has changed about every, you know, two weeks for the past mm -hmm. 52 weeks. You know, this is where I'm at today based on, on what I know today and based on where the virus is at today. And so it's really, I think it's really just important that we move forward on that basis. All right. Well, hey, Dan, really appreciate it. The, the view from the classroom is so important. And hey, I know that I'm somebody that, that's known for being, you know, the nation's number one fan of standardized test scores. And I, and I like a, I like a rigorous, uh, you know, tough class. I want to make kids squirm at the same time. Look, I think the joy stuff is, is not frivolous. It's super important. We do have a mental health crisis right now. And we just know there's tons of research that, that kids learn more when they have a strong relationship with their teacher, right? That connection and that sense of community in the classroom, the culture that great schools like yours try to build. I mean, that stuff matters a lot. And if masks are getting in the way, we got to acknowledge that they are much more than just a minor inconvenience. 
All right. Thanks again, Dan Buck, Senior Visiting Fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Uh, Good luck this week when you're back at school there at Holy Spirit Middle School. We'll be thinking of you. All right. Thanks for having me on. Well, that is all the time we've got for that segment. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show, Amber. Thanks, Mike. So this is a big week in our house. This is a school play week. Leandro uh, in the Wizard of Oz this week. We're very excited. Nice. Yeah. Is he the wizard or what? who's the plan? <laughs> <laughs> he is not. He is Professor Marvel, who uh, is it's wow. a small role at the beginning. We're very excited. This is a year late. They are supposed to do this mm. as fourth graders, but because of the pandemic, it didn't happen. But so I was very impressed. They're doing it for both the fourth and fifth graders this year. And so we're, we're back at it. And uh, uh, I can't yeah. wait to hear how it goes. I, I, I will report it Hopefully, here. I don't remember him having stage fright. I remember you brought him <laughs> to an affordable event a while back. And I think we were, I think we were making up Ed reform songs to popular pop culture songs. Uh-huh, Is uh-huh. this ringing a bell? And um, I believe he had some lyrics to share with the audience. <laughs> he was not shy. Yeah, that probably sounds about right. He, uh, <laughs> you'll be shocked to know he's a little bit of a ham. So, yeah, and, just and, a little. And a, a great, great dancer too. Do a video for us, Mike. Do something. Okay. okay. All right. Well, what you got for us this week? We have a new study that examines the post-secondary effects of an alternative pathway for students who fail one or more required exit exams. So this is kind of interesting. Maryland has had this, what they call a bridge program since 2005, and the kids have to take these exit exams in algebra, biology, and English. And it allows the students who fail at least one of those exit exams twice to demonstrate acquisition of basic skills and standards for graduating through projects and work portfolios. Importantly, they get the same degree as the students who pass the exams. So employers and college admissions officers don't know any different. After the second failure, this is how it works, teachers help students design their bridge project identifying which standards need additional work based on incorrect exam answers. The projects are then judged by a district review board, but the specific expectations are subjective and local boards may, quote, apply qualitatively different criteria. So in in other words, this is part of our uh, strategy here to fake our graduation standards. I did not say that, Mr. Petrilli. Okay, anyways, yes, go ahead. I think the find, I mean, just... Bear out the study. Eligible students are allowed unlimited retakes and can keep trying to pass the exit exams as they pursue the bridge option. Analysts follow four cohorts of students in the Maryland Longitudinal Data System from eighth grade through high school, then one year out after their on-time graduation. They're looking only at students eligible for bridge. It's about 37,000 kids in their sample. They divide them into three mutually exclusive groups. One, Bridgers who completed the bridge program and graduate high school. Two, test passers who retook the exam and graduated. Three, non-completers who failed to complete high school. They want to see if students who complete bridge acquire similar skills as those who pass the retest. And also if bridge completers have superior skills or abilities than students who failed to complete high school. Given the selection issue here, they make use of a rich set of observational characteristics, including race, ethnicity, gender, FRL status, SPED and ELL status, homeless eligibility, and eligibility for Title I supports, 
They also control for eighth grade indicators of academic and behavioral outcomes, including middle school test scores in math, ELA, and science. Suspensions, other disciplinary actions, and eighth grade attendance. Then they use an approach whereby they match students within cells of students who, again, are demographically similar in gender, age, and FRL status. They have similar failing exam scores. They have a similar number of failed exams. They attended the same high school in the same district. And then they try to match on motivation to graduate by only comparing students who appear in the fall of their senior year and at least attempted to pass three required exams. Results. Compared to students who graduate by retaking and passing exit exams, students who graduate through bridge have lower college enrollment. Specifically, they're less likely to attend college by six percentage points and three percentage points less likely each at both two- and four-year colleges. But they have similar employment outcomes, meaning bridge passers and test passers are employed at similar rates after high school. For wages, bridgers who are employed and not in college earn 11.7% less in wages than similar students who pass the algebra exam. They find no wage differences in biology and English and no differences in any of the subjects for students who are working and attending college. Next, they look at the students who completed bridge compared to students who did not complete high school and they find bridgers are much better off in terms of post-secondary and labor force opportunities. Specifically, bridgers in any subject are more likely to attend college by six to nine percentage points, which comes mostly from two-year college attendance. Bridgers are also more likely to be employed by seven to nine percentage points, if not, again, if not enrolled in college. Again, if you're not in college, bridging in biology is associated with a 26% wage increase and bridging in English with a 19% wage increase over non-completers. So the bottom line is that those who complete the bridge alternative pathway to graduation are somewhat disadvantaged in college access compared to those who pass tests, but substantially more advantaged in both college and workforce outcomes than those who fail to complete high school. I don't think that's terribly surprising, but hey, we have not had enough research on those types of you know alternative projects and portfolio things. I like it a lot. And similar to you know the questions we've had around credit recovery, and you're right that it's not surprising. I, I think your dog squeaking in the background there with his squeaky toy <laughs> agrees with that. Is no, that right? got headphones on. <laughs> T-bone, he always T-bone squeaks agrees. in research minutes. Crazy. So the non-completers, these are people then do not have a high school diploma. So it's not surprising that they make less money, right? Because their employers would know that. So we really don't know if that means that they have less skills or if they've just, they're really suffering from this, this signal. On the other hand, the, the bridgers, you know, at the very least, they've got, they're showing some kind of, call it non-cognitive or SEL or care, something. The, the wherewithal to stick with it and get this portfolio thing done and, and over the line. Uh, so that could also explain it. Although they did try to, again, compare on that stick to by the kids who stuck through and kept retaking. They did try to control a little bit for motivation. Yeah. And then it's not surprising that kids who could pass the test were more likely to go to college. Because by the way, if you can't pass these tests, why the heck is anybody telling you you should go to college? Right? I mean, I know I'm a, I'm a broken record. Our listeners are tired of me saying this, but it's just uh, it's outrageous that we're telling young people with low levels of academic skills that college, even a trade kind of college, is for them if we know they're not going to succeed in it. So I don't know. So what what to make of this? I guess the uh, the the bridging program. If the goal is to get these kids decent paying jobs and 
to not make them suffer from being called a high school dropout, that this is a, a plus? David, what, what do you think? My take, which you're not going to like, is that uh, qualitatively different high school graduation standards are not the worst. I mean, I think we'd see more of a contrast if they were. I have sort of a dovish take on this. I think one way or another, people are going to, employers certainly are going to suss out what the kid's really about, what their skill level really is. And I think our biggest goal with people in this age range should be to keep the marginally attached attached to something that looks like a pipeline towards basic skills, towards employment. I don't know. I mean, I think we're at the point where maybe finally we can stop making high school graduation some sort of holy grail for either side and talk about outcomes that matter. You want to disagree with me? No, no. I guess I'm just trying to understand how that all fits together. I mean, is are you basically saying, hey, we should make it easy for people to get a high school <laughs> diploma? Just give them the paper. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. I'm saying credit recovery. I'm not sure it does any additional harm Yeah, beyond the harm that's already been done, right? right? In the sense that the kids can't pass a normal class. All right. But then that would also argue for not having any kind of test requirements, right? Not having any kind of exit exams or end of course exams uh, mm-hmm. that kids have to pass mm-hmm. as we still have in maybe what 15 states uh, has still have that policy it all depends mike in places what that don't have these exams kids at the upper end of the spectrum take ib and ap because they're looking to distinguish themselves if we do have these i suspect that the yes will be able to deny a certain percentage of the population a high school degree but i'm not sure that population will actually learn anything more as a result. Yeah. Now, look, I, I don't disagree with you as much as, as I sometimes imply. I mean, I really am struggling with this question right now. And I plan to write about it is, you know, what do we do for those lowest performing kids? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if the credit recovery BS thing is, is the best we can do for them. You know, maybe this bridging thing is, is a little bit better. And, you know, at least they're working directly with some teachers and they're trying to demonstrate, you know, what they know in some other way. I just don't know what, I don't even know if they should be taking regular, you know, high school academic courses is the right thing for those kids. Or if we should let them get started on working while they're 16 and 17, you know, and still in some way attached to the high school I, I just don't know. I think that I, my, my own case, I just feel very much a sense of humility that I don't know the best thing for the kids at the 10th or 20th percentile of achievement who are, you know, ninth or 10th grade. It just, I just have this nagging sense that we are not serving these kids well by the current system. I think we all agree with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so, that's not what, controversial. What we should do instead. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Well, hey, Ed, it, it is a cool study. I, I especially like the controls they use for the how the kids are doing in eighth grade. That I buy. Yeah. That these were kids with similar test score patterns and attendance and discipline patterns. That that to me is is pretty compelling. And I think that's how we could study some of the credit recovery stuff to see if Yeah, these states that have these, you know, connect their databases to other agencies, you know, where they can track mm-hmm. employment and labor outcomes. Ooh, it's pretty nice. Yeah, no, this is this is definitely where it's at right now. All right. Well, thank you, Amber. That is all the time we've got for this week, though. So until next week. I'm Dave Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.